Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. My name's Olivia, and each week on this podcast, we go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry to give you the best tips and tricks on how to make your content and to learn the stories of the amazing creators behind some of your favorite Canadian content. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Kirsten Hunter, who is a Canadian sound editor. She's worked on sound for so many projects, including Handmaid's Tale, The Expanse, Tall Boys. She is behind what you're hearing when you're watching those productions. In this episode, we go behind the scenes into the sound department to learn the process of how everything comes together in post-production. I hope you will enjoy, and I'm sure that you will learn a lot about sound and have a whole new appreciation for it. Okay, sound is so interesting to me because I feel like it's one of the under-discussed areas of the entertainment industry. So I'm curious, you know, how you first got interested in sound and um, what your path into your first job was. I always had a passion for music growing up from when I was really, really little. Um, So I was classically trained in piano. So that was kind of my first entryway into that. And then I'd say my dad listened to awesome music. So we would just like listen to music all the time. Like that was one of our passions and you know, I would always like build his speaker systems and route it through the house. And um, so I was kind of exposed to it on a technical side and like at a pretty young age, I really <laughs> learned to not like performance. I did not like being in front of people. So I used to negotiate with my piano teacher that, hey, I'll record the recitals, um, but don't make me play in front of people. <laughs> So that that happened uh, quite frequently. And then uh, it was in high school where um, at the time it wasn't a very common course, but I think it's become more common. I was in a technical music production, which is where you got to use uh, digital audio workstations. Uh, We used a program called ACID and you would write in a program called Encore and it was just... Uh, That was my entry into the digital side of, you know, you can still create music, you can still do all this without actually having to perform in front of people. That music teacher was really instrumental in, you know, doing my entrance interviews and essays to get into, um, they just went under the rebrand, Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University. Um, So I went there. And I studied radio and television arts. And originally I thought I would go into music production. That was the passion. And then when I was there, I took the audio post-production class uh, with this amazing professor and it just changed my whole direction. And the reason why I loved audio post so much is because you got to be involved with music you got to listen to score you got to experience that but then I felt like my specialty and my strong suit was actually in the technical editing side of things not necessarily the creative 
composition or recording bands, I felt like my skill set lent more to the editing side. But I feel like I didn't really sacrifice every anything because I still get to be involved with the whole conversation still, even though I'm a dialogue editor. Um, so I get to still enjoy music without it being, you know, my job. So that's how I came into audio post-production, the short version. <laughs> so, okay, I was going through your IMDb page and all through your IMDb page, you have, you know, assistant sound editor, and then you progress to sound effects editor, and then you have dialogue editor and ADR editor. And to be honest with you, I don't really understand the differences and, and what each role does to separate itself from the other. So I don't know if you can give us a quick spark notes on all of those roles and how they come into a production. That's a really great question. Um, and those job titles are, um, they kind of get designated from the guilds that we're part of. So I'm a member of the Directors Guild of Canada. So when you graduate from whichever program you're studying from, uh, you apply to the guilds. Um, and usually the entry level position that you'll go into is something called a trainee assistant sound editor. Um, depending on the experience you have already um, prior to applying, you might automatically get right into an assistant sound editor position. So really what those are, are positions that you start with and you're responsible for a whole lot. And it really, it's supposed to be your entryway into gaining more experience as you progress to editor. So you're working alongside editors the whole time. You do a lot of the te technical backend because if you don't really know the technical backend, it, it makes it hard to then go to the editor. So a lot of the job is uh, very technical, like you know, building sessions, data management, dealing with a whole lot of sound roles and sound files and conforming, and they're instrumental to everything we do. So sound editors are so important, or assistant sound editors are so important to as you progress to sound editor, um, because we rely on them to help keep the ship moving. So once you get to a certain amount of hours or experience, and if you choose, uh, I think that's really important. Some people just love assisting. Um, not everybody wants to always progress to the sound editor. Um, but once you get a certain amount under your belt, then you'll be given, you know, smaller projects to start. And then it builds and builds and builds to the fact that you'll eventually be a full sound editor. So my whole trajectory was probably 10 years from when I started as an assistant, probably five or six years before I got my first editing jobs. And then I was kind of switching back and forth between editing and assisting. And then it's only been, I guess, I guess the last five, six years that I've been a full-fledged editor now. That's amazing. So in terms of then picking your trajectory or, or maybe you don't pick, maybe you do it all, with respect to being a dialogue editor, how does that differ from being an ADR editor, for example? Uh, dialogue and ADR editing um, can sometimes fall under the same uh, person doing that job. Sometimes if you're fortunate, you can work on a production where somebody is just cutting production materials, so production sync, so everything from on set. 
that's one of the jobs. The other job is doing ADR. So once you identify the material that's not usable from set, say, you know, there's a lot of moves on top of it, or um, the production might say, I want a different performance, or I want to change the line, then we go into ADR. And so that's when you start to work with the actors, you bring them in to re-record those lines, and then you have to edit them back in the edit before you can deliver it. Sometimes it can be done by one person, depending on the show. Like for TV shows, you kind of always have to keep like the episodic shows, you have to keep the shit moving. So you have to keep editing and you have to keep recording and recording can be very time consuming. Just same with editing. So if you're fortunate, you can get a two person team for that. So then your life or your day in a life uh, as a dialogue editor, let's say, so what is it, what does it look like for you? It really depends on the show. Uh, I think, and it also depends where you are in the process. Um, so at the start of a show, uh, you're doing a lot of the technical heavy lifting. You're doing the conversations with the clients, um, your sound evaluations, um, and your primary objective is trying to get those ADR lists to your clients as quickly as possible so that they can start tracking down talent and booking. And now that we have COVID, we have COVID testing protocols and you can only have so many people. So it's like this ADR lists out the door immediately. So that that would generally happen pretty fast. Once ADR is kind of off your plate, you would shift to editing. So, um, and it really depends on the show. Sometimes I could edit, you know, a two minute scene and that will be a full work day if it's that hard. If I like finish eight minutes a day, I'm like through, like, I'm so happy. And if you do more than that, which sometimes you have to move at a quicker pace. It's just like, yeah, you're moving very fast. So it can be very tedious, a lot of repetition. Uh, you listen to everything. So everything that was recorded on set, we get all of those sound rules. And part of our job is listening to every single take, every single microphone, see if anything can be improved and just really try to find the pieces of the puzzle to put it all together. Wow, that's insane. So there is a there are multiple days in your life where you spend all day on two minutes of a movie yeah. production. That yeah. must be mind-numbing sometimes. When you're in it, so there's the for me, there's this thing that happens where it's like you look at a scene and you say, oh my, like you know it's gonna be hard. And so you kind of procrastinate a little bit or you might go and edit like the last scene in the episode and kind of work yourself up to it but then once you get into it once you're in it you're you're in it and I, I don't know how to describe it, it the, the time passes so quickly while you're working on it because it's like at the end of the day it's what we're passionate about and you're trying to solve a problem like that's the best way I can describe dialogue is you're just trying to solve how do you get from point A to point B with it being as cohesive as possible so that a viewer will never know this was actually recorded over multiple days or, you know, there was a giant fan on set or something. I think that's what's really cool. But I would say if you were to ask a sound effects editor, they would be like, I could think of nothing worse 
than <laughs> anything I've seen of dialogue and having to take that long. So what makes a scene especially difficult to edit for you? Uh, there could be several factors. Environment in which it was recorded can be really challenging, you know, depending what the set pieces are or outfits worn by the talent, like if it's constantly brushing up against microphones or if the cinematography doesn't allow for a boom microphone to get close to the talent. Those can really create challenges for us. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where you really have to listen to every single microphone just to see, hey, maybe there was a closer pickup for this random take or going into ADR, but you're always trying to make whatever you can from set work. Like that's always going to be preference. So you end up spending a lot of time uh, working that and then also layers, you know, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen Handmaid's Tale, but there's some scenes where there's like all these beautiful sequences of just voices on top of voices on top of voices and trying to make the decisions as to what the viewer should be hearing at a particular time and what's not as crucial. You know, there's like this birthing episode in, I think it was season two. I, it, I think it took days <laughs> to, to piece together just that weave. And then when you watch it, you're just like, oh, I can't believe that that took that long. <laughs> but that's the beauty of it to me. So are you, do you participate in ADR sessions with the actors? Are you sitting there and saying, okay, this is when you say your line or how, how does that process work? So it is show specific. Um, I'm not involved in ADR for all, but um, for the shows that I have been involved with, what we do is we generate a list uh, for the talent. Uh, usually they get it in advance and they have like a little bit of information as to why we've called certain lines. So, you know, we'll, we'll detail like, oh, um, this is because, you know, there was a car pass by or there was an airplane passing by. So you have that conversation. And usually at the start of every session, at least for myself, I like kind of having those conversations before the actor gets in the booth, just so that they know why. Um, and then they go into the booth. They've got the script in front of them. They generally have some sort of screen. Um, and it's really bizarre if you've never done it before. <laughs> the, the talent that these actors have to do this. There's a, there's a line that crosses the screen. At the same time, they're hearing beeps in their headphones. So beep, beep, beep line. So where that fourth beep would theoretically go is where we time the line. And then they have to watch themselves and perform the line as close to being in sync as possible. We do have a lot of tools now that we can kind of nudge things into place. Primarily, you want to try to focus as best on performance as possible when you're on in the stage because you can kind of nip and tuck certain things. But if they've got the rhythm off or if they're not projecting loud enough, the, that could be challenging for ADR editing afterwards. So then a super heavy editing job from, you know, your perspective, how long does that process take? For films, it's it's definitely conceivable. It could be months. It really, it really dictates the budget, to be honest with you. I think you could spend 
as much or as little time is allowed. It's, you know, like any creative um, job, you will always find something to go back to do or, you know, to fix or something new to experiment on. I'd say it's probably standard to have about two months to do a film, but it can be anywhere from four weeks to six months, you know, and if it's animation, years <laughs> based on when they're going to get visual effects. And then television shows, you generally work at a, a, a quicker pace and then there's usually more people on the team. So um, that will help drive the speed at which you can turn over episodes. But I'd say like, a 44 minute drama, an hour long drama, you're, you're looking at from the time it gets turned over to the time we final mix, uh, probably anywhere between one to two months would probably be my guess. But that also means there's other teams that have worked like visual effects might've started before sound or composing might've started before sound. So there's a lot of pieces that have to happen um, at the same time. So it's always in flux. That is crazy. I didn't realize how much time you had with productions. I thought it was a lot faster. Uh, some of them are absolutely like I've been on shows where it's you finish the mix and the next day it's on air and you had it like maybe a week or two before. So I'd say like that absolutely does happen, but I, I guess maybe I've been spoiled or a bit fortunate that I haven't had as uh, in recent times. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love my post supervisors and coordinators, so they protect me. <laughs> That's funny. Can you talk about your favorite part about working in sound? I love the technical side of it. I I, I truly am passionate uh, about dialogue editing. I think. The part that I love most about it is that you're always thrown into new subject matters that you get to learn about. And you're always working on something new and something challenging and technology is constantly changing and evolving. So there's kind of always this ebb and flow to what you're doing. Like you're just always pushing forward um, in different ways. And I, I think that makes our job really special because as even though we're sound editors, if you're working on like a period piece or a documentary, you have to learn about what that environment sounded like. And I remember one of my first projects, I was working just like a couple of days on the Titanic series. I remember getting this book of being like, oh, the floor is on this in the steerage compartment were made of this, while the floors and upper class were made of this type of material. And it's, that would affect the sound. And this is what type of telephones there were. And, you know, and then when you work on documentaries, like you just learn so much about uh, anything that you're working on. I think that's one of my favorite parts about it. Every project is just new and you get to learn and, you're always growing in that way. So then all of that research that you do, are you then, is that oftentimes cultivated in production or do you then add in those floor creaks when someone's walking around that are particular to that, uh, you know, 
level of the Titanic. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it happens in all the shows, but yes, uh, all of that material would get considered by the sound effects team, the Foley team. So Foley artists are the people who go and perform the footsteps. They're doing the cloth moves. So if you're watching like an action show of, you know, whatever, they might have the armor on and they might be recording in their studio and they're the ones walking around in high heels on different flooring surfaces and, um, you know, making sounds for flesh tearing and, you know, they'll do everything. Um, so those are definitely parts of conversations. Like I'd say probably for dialogue editing, a lot of what we uh, talk about is accents. You know, um, what would this environment sound like? Where are the people from? That would be a really important conversation we'd have uh, for dialogue. That would be a bit more era-specific, decade-specific. So is there ever a world in which you, someone, an actor did a bad accent, can you fix it? Yeah. Really? I mean, not easily and uh, not without problems. You know, if, if somebody's performing with a certain accent, you have to keep in mind, you can only do so much when their mouth is moving. So if somebody's speaking and then they completely change their accent, well, that's going to change the way the syllables hit their mouth. So you can absolutely re-record somebody afterwards. Will it be great sync? Like, will it be believable to the audience member? That would be a different layer. But accent work all the time. The There was some performance performers who are British. And, you know, we, we go in syllable by syllable to just try to correct. Um, so you'll listen to all the takes, see if maybe they perform something with you know, maybe a more American sounding accent. And if not, then you would go in for ADR. And if the performer is great, you can probably just cut in that syllable or like the one word um, where the accent is really obvious. Um, so that's a lot of, you know, the really technical back end of dialogue and ADR editing. But I think that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like... Uh Mixed somewhere between the most tedious thing ever and the most fun thing ever. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Exactly. <laughs> so, okay, so is there anything else like that, perhaps, that people might not know about working in sound or something that would potentially surprise people about what it is that you do on films? I think for people who are not in the industry, I think their their minds are always blown when I talk to them about the level of detail that goes into it. Uh, the idea that like everything you hear some gets recreated, you know, um, like every door, every footstep, you know, that's all built after the fact. But our job is to make it sound as believable as possible pretty nuts to think of a 90 minute film for example and every single sound that you hear is intentional i'd say other than your production dialogue and maybe if there's some really great you know moves or sounds from on set that are like really unique it's mostly getting recreated afterwards and i think not everybody knows that on set, their job is to get the best performances they can from the actors. And if they can pick it up sonically with the microphones, that 
it's great, but I don't think it's their priority. I think they're what what will visually look best, what's going to get the actor's performance there. And then we have so many tools now, you know, they won't care about putting a wind machine on set or having like a car chase sequence because they know that that stuff all gets recreated afterwards. That's crazy. But I it's funny about the Foley artist because I thought that that was sort of a thing of the past. I thought we had maybe moved more towards like, you know, digital sounds, but it's crazy to know that there's still some guy stomping around on concrete. <laughs> if, if you ever work on a project that doesn't have fully budgeted, you are like, why does this sound so weird? They are such a necessary artistry for filmmaking that I, I don't think they get out overlooked, but maybe because I'm in the industry, <laughs> um, what they add, they add presence, you know, they add that those body moves that we all take for granted. Like when you're sitting down, it's like, you don't realize how much your body as it moves through this world creates sound. And when you recreate a fit or when you do a film and you don't have fully, it's bizarre sounding. That's funny. There's like an element missing. Yeah. And you, you, and for dialogue, you, you really know because if you're recording, say what we call a walk and talk where it's, you know, they're walking down the street and you're not hearing the footsteps or, you know, their jacket rustling or some, you're, why does this sound so hollow? So it's, it's really important. And if you can get a fully artist. I think you would have a really great conversation. They do some really <laughs> cool stuff. I think that's going to be on my my next dream guest list because it sounds like a lot of fun. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> so um, can you talk about one of the your proudest moments so far in your career? Oh, big question. That is big. Working on The Handmaid's Tale and... Uh, first season and I like me and uh, the supervisor I remember watching it and we're like wow this is this is something special and we were working on it for months and months before you know even the commercials dropped or um, it aired in Canada and uh, I remember talking to my mom and dad about it they were excited but then once they saw the first episode, I remember watching it with them over FaceTime. I'm from Winnipeg. But watching it with them and then watching their reaction. And I mean, we we knew we were part of something big, uh, but I don't think anybody knew. And I'd say sharing that whole moment with my parents and that they could see that I was on a show of that level, you know, after being, you know, a student for so long. Um, I was really proud, and I, I I I know my parents were proud of that too because that took so many years to get to, um, and I don't take it for granted. But I'd say sharing sharing that with them was very important, at least for me. My parents were a huge support system for me, so for them to experience that because it's like you know it's the whole family working hard to achieve these types of goals you know their sacrifices getting me into university and helping me through there so I'd say that was a really um 
proud moment. And I actually lost my father the year later. So looking back on it, I'm even more proud <laughs> that he um, got to see that. Yeah, that's such a like really nice memory to have mm -hmm. forever. It's so special. And yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So speaking of getting into the industry and it being a tough slog to make it to where you wanted to go, do you have any tips for people who are, you know, listening to your job and thinking, wow, you know, I could really see myself as a sound editor one day? I think uh, my biggest piece of advice is to just be open to any opportunity uh, that comes your way and just focus on building genuine relationships with people. For me, myself, whenever I've worked with somebody new, I never have the expectation that you're going to know everything, you know, and I think this is sometimes a disservice that some students have coming out of the university is that, you know, they, they have this high expectation for themselves where really they need to be realized, like, there's so much to learn and, you know, there's, there's a really long training period that goes into it. So I just say like, be mindful of that focus on just building solid relationships with people and then just stay open and be a sponge. Like everybody will have something to teach you. I don't have an easy solution as to how um, you can go about it other than, you know, just, just keep trying to be honest. And uh, yeah, and then once once you're in, just give everything you can to it. For me, I'm very much a type A. And whenever, uh, you know, you'd mess up something, you would take it really to heart. And, and then it, it would be really hard mentally to overcome that. And, you know, nobody expects you to be perfect, you know, and I had like an amazing mentor, David McCallum, uh, who's still a huge mentor to me. And we work on tons of projects together. But as I was, you know, transitioning, uh, like from assistant, it's like, he just gave me a little bit more, a little bit more to do each project, you know, but there was never pressure that it was like, you know, it was taking off of his plate. It was just learning. It was just like, okay, now try to add this to your repertoire, learn to do this, come to these ADR sessions, learn how you talk to actors, learn how you, you know, interact in spottings. And it was just building blocks. And then over years, you have enough to say, okay, I can be an editor now. I've, I've gotten enough experience. That's, yeah, that's a really amazing experience to have. So I'm curious, if you don't mind me asking, I feel like, especially in the industry, so much of the technical side of the production is dominated by men. And I wonder, you know, you're killing it as a woman. And I'm wondering, you know, what your experience has just been as a woman in the industry. I've had an incredibly positive experience. And I'd say that it has a lot to do with the owner of the company when I started. So it was called Tattersall Sound and Picture. The president of that is Jane Tattersall. And she is a powerhouse. And I respect her so much. I In university, I did a project about her. So I know I get to work with her. It's so cool. So I'd say because she was at the top of the company that I worked alongside with, I definitely know I was protected in that environment. I never 
felt less than. And, and there was always women, there was, it was definitely not a 50-50 men to women, but there was a lot of women. You know, I work with quite a few female sound editors and I, that was definitely, it's definitely unique to her. Um, and I do think though, in the last few years, since I started, you know, I'm seeing a lot more assistant sound editors who are, who are women who are joining. Um, and I think it's really great, but if I'm being completely honest, I feel, I feel so grateful that, you know, because all of the clients all, uh, you were never questioned. It was never, you know, you were, you earned your spot there like everyone else. That, that's amazing. Um, so I have to ask, can you recommend a piece of Canadian content? Uh, my favorite from the last year is sort of. I love everything about that show. And uh, I'm jealous that I didn't get to work on it. But I think it's just beautiful. I love how it represents Toronto. I love the stories. I love the characters. I love the music in it. I just, yeah, I can't wait for season two. <laughs> Ah, that's amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. This was an absolute pleasure. I learned so much about the sound industry. So that was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. And if you love the show, please rate and review. It really helps people find the show. And to give you a tiny bit of a teaser, we have some really exciting episodes coming up in May. And I'll give you a little clue. It has to do with the kids in the hall. So you'll have to come back next Wednesday to find out. Have a great week.